said I can do that. Yeah, well, it, you, you. Chance? Huh? He said he believed in you. Yeah, and, and what? a very gullible man, and there you go. <laughs> He just, he just a big, big positive, he's just a big, major positive thinker, yeah? yeah? Okay, well, let's go ahead and let, let me pray and get us, and we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. For it is beyond measure. Truthly, truly Father, it's even beyond belief. And yet, there it is. You love us as dear children, and treat us as such. And we can only fall in amazement and gratitude and praise. We ask, Father, that you would use this time to teach us, that you would continue to engender in us a desire for you that exceeds all other desires. that you would teach us how to pray to you, that you would begin to kindle a fire that seeks to pray to you, that you would lead us to a place where that is where we enjoy to be most, is in prayer with you. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us these opportunities, that we have this privilege to be here this morning, it alone is a great blessing that not every generation has shared. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to preserve that for us in the days and years ahead. We thank you for our fellowship, this church, and we ask, Father, that you would continue to, to work in it to your glory to our sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we come to the last chapter. It's, it's possibly going to be a, well, it's only confusing right now because we're actually doing, we're fixing to, we're not doing, in my mind we're doing three books because we're finishing up this book and we're fixing to start another one. And I don't know if I made a pitch for it yet or not, but the next book that we're going to pick up is Forgiveness by Tom Keller. And uh, this, I think this book will be a bit of a surprise to you uh, when we get going on it because he, he takes a, a, both a personal but also a very broad uh, attack. Attack's not the right word. He, he has both a, a, a personal perspective and a very broad perspective on forgiveness. And I'm kind of looking forward to seeing where this one takes us. So we, we are doing, in essence right now, the, t t the Sunday school, we're working on three books. We're finishing up learning to pray, uh, I'm sorry, praying up with Paul. We will be starting forgiveness, and we're still in the middle of taking God at his word. So got quite a bit going on. Um, like I say, this is the last chapter of this book, and Carson opens the final chapter with a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. 
He says, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Carson stops his quote there. That's all he says. Uh, the, but that's only half the sentence. So the other half of the sentence, it actually goes like this. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. Now, if you know anything about Ralph Waldo Emerson, he started out uh, in the uh, Unitarian Church, and he was a pastor in the Unitarian Church. But he moved on beyond Unitarianism and developed what is known as Transcendentalism. Uh, and we're not going to spend any time discussing any of that, okay? Just to let you know. What's your name? What is my name? My name is Ken White. I'm Robert. Good to meet you, Robert. I sold parts to a lot of people. <laughs> okay, so anyway, um, anyway, so uh, Emerson's point was that only small-minded men refuse to rethink their prior beliefs, or put another way. He thought that today's intuition could trump yesterday's conclusions. Now, this is a statement by a legal blogger that I found. And I, I have to say that I don't think that both of those statements mean the same thing. But I do think he's a little bit on to something as to what um, Emerson is trying to make. Um, that, that, that men who do not rethink their assumptions from time to time um, are probably doomed to error. Is that true for the Christian? Yes, sir. Um, it's evangelical free church. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll have a hard time getting through my lesson if you if you keep asking those questions. So those. I, I already I already have I already have a hard time getting through the lesson. So <laughs> yeah, we will we will be later. Okay. So um, okay. So anyway, and but I would I, so I'd like to say, is that true for Christians or not? That from time to time we need to rethink our assumptions. It is, right? Let's take a for instance. Yes, sir. Particularly our assumptions. Yes. Well, I think maybe you're thinking, well, assumptions versus beliefs, maybe? Yeah, but, but in fact, even our beliefs derive from some of our Assumptions. There are fundamental assumptions that we make about life and reality. All right. And um, and I, and I'd just like to take one example of something that might we might want to re-examine. I made the statement the last time I, we we did this. I taught this, and, and when we were looking at Isaiah and the king of Assyria. All right. 
And I made the statement, and, and, it, and it talked about in that passage, God called the king of Assyria what? He's an axe in my hand, right? And I made the statement that we are closer to that axe in nature than we are to God. Because both the axe and us are material. All right? That was my statement and my logic. Anybody want to challenge that statement? That's right. So, so, I, but, I, but you're exactly right. What about the statement where, where basically God says, Let us make man in our own image, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and all the creeping things that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in this passage here, it makes a pretty big point that about man and man's creation, that we are in fact created in the image of God. Now, I'm not bringing this up to then raise our assessment, you know, let's become and advocate for, let's say, becoming humanists, okay? I'm not necessarily doing that. But I, but I think, you know, for, for me to, to, to make the statement that I made, it, it drives home the point that there is this gulf between God and man, all right? And it's a vast gulf. In fact, it is a gulf that man cannot span. Only the God-man could span it for us. Okay? So, so, and that's essentially the point that I was trying to make. But, but to place us in a category that we are just material beings, which that that, that statement could be said to presume is false. We are not just material beings. We have a consciousness. A consciousness that can is both self-aware and is God-aware. Right? Okay, so <clears throat> Carson's point using this statement is that some people love a kind of consistency in their spiritual disciplines that the Bible itself will not allow. He says, and I quote, a little mystery, a little inconsistency leaves room for a sovereign and transcendent God. However, few of us are prepared to think that inconsistency is of great virtue. The word conjures up fickleness, instability, even falsehood. Those who take the God of the truth, serious, of truth seriously cannot help but conclude, for instance, that the various parts of Scripture, this God's own self-disclosure, must cohere at some level. 
He quotes, and then he, he references, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And I love that verse. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And they are a treasure of a, of a treasure beyond all, all earthly material value, are they not? <clears throat> he gives us he uses as an analogy a jigsaw puzzle where there's a ton of pieces. And we happen to know that many of the pieces are missing. But we also know that the pieces that are on the table all belong there. They are all part of the same puzzle. They're trying to work a puzzle where the pieces are all jumbled up and you can't tell which piece, whether the piece really belongs in the puzzle or not. Really. Messes with your mind, Frank. It messes with my mind anyway. <laughs> All right, so he makes the following points. This study was not intended to be an exhaust, exhaustive in any way. It doesn't even cover all of Paul's prayers, let alone the prayers of Moses, David, the prophets in the Old Testament, Peter, John, in the New Testament. It has not covered all themes or human experiences and emotions represented in Scripture. We've not covered unanswered prayer. We've not covered prayers that were commanded to pray, such as, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. But what we have seen is that, one, prayer is not formulaic. There is no formula as to how we should construct our, our prayers so that we get the outcome that we desire. Prayer is one of the means whereby we nurture our relationship with the living God, and that has been much of the focus of this book. Prayer has consistency in that we all have throughout all ages, think about this, throughout all ages, Every human being has prayed to the same unchangeable God. We share with Moses, David, and Paul, and Jesus Christ, many of the same human experiences, emotions, and needs. And we've all prayed to the same. Yet prayer contains a lot of inconsistency, missing puzzle pieces, that, focus us, that force us to trust and obey without complete understanding. Prayer has at its heart the glory of God above all else, in the world and in our hearts. The concern is not getting what we want, but getting what God wants. Thus, prayers do not always get answered the way we want or expect, which is the case of our passage today. All right, and so then, we, then he, he, the, his, the passage is Romans 15, 14 through 33. 
It's a rather long passage, but if you want to look it up, I'll, I'll begin reading. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room to work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for uh, for, Macedo for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and I have delivered them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And then here's his appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that, I may, that, and, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Okay, so... Let's get a little context. Now, this is a somewhat busy slide and pretty difficult to read, but it actually contains quite a bit of information. And this basically is the timeline of, of the life of the Apostle Paul. The um, blue regions here indicate his journeys. 
And it's interesting, you know, sometimes they call the fourth journey of Paul the journey from Jerusalem to Rome, uh, which is, would be coming. But that's not on this one, because that, if, because that would be right here if, um, if they were doing that. And, in, and so they, they, they put out here on the end a fourth journey, possibly, okay? Because there's a, there is about a 10-year span or an 8-year span here between the time that Paul arrives in, in Rome and he, then he is thought to have been executed. But for the purposes of our understanding of things, Paul is in Corinth at the moment that, when he writes Romans, okay? And that would be indicated right here. So Paul is right here in, in, the, in the period of his lifespan, all right? He writes Romans and he sends it off to Rome, okay? Now we know from Acts, that Paul's plan to get to Rome on his way to Spain is not what happened, right? But, but, but Paul is sitting in Corinth right now. He's halfway through his third journey. So he started over here in Antioch. He went across uh, Turkey and all the way over to Greece and Corinth. Now he's headed back. So he's going to come back through and he's going to pick up the money in Macedonia and he's going to head home. By the time he, when he gets to Miltus, he, he calls and asks that the, the, the elders in Ephesus come to Miltus to meet with him. And by the time, so by the time, from Corinth to Miltus, um, basically Paul has a, a different view of what's fixing to happen. In fact, he tells the Ephesian elders and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So, as he begins to move through Macedonia, I, the Spirit probably through individuals and perhaps even in his own soul begins to tell him that what you are planning and what you are hoping for and what you are praying for, that's not going to happen. So today's passage is not about what Paul prays, prays for, but rather him asking for prayer for himself and his ministry. And there are at least four lessons to be drawn from this passage. The first one is, Paul wants this prayer to be offered with earnestness, urgency, and persistence. I urge you is the same word that is used in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God. All right? 
that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. That same urgency is what Paul is asking for here in terms of prayer. It is to call to one, to one side or to summon, to, in, in exhortation. It, it's a very broad word. It can mean a lot of things. Uh, you know, exhortation and admonishment, to beg and entreat, beseech, to console or encourage and strengthen by consolation and comfort, to instruct or teach, okay? Or any combination of those. I urge you, in the bond of family, brothers, I urge you, brothers, and because of a common obligation of the Christian experience by our Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a participant in the salvation that he has gained for you in the shedding of his blood and in the righteousness of his human life of suffering, having believed, you submit to his will and calling, having tasted his redemption and been adopted into the family and the kingdom of God, and by the love of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> The Holy Spirit that has made your stony heart a heart of flesh. And has, who continually works in you to sanctify you to his glory and to your good. Those are the obligations that are implied in Paul's request some of the obligations. And then he says, strive with me. Striving together. Join in my struggle is the way the NIV. And it is one word. Um, and it's only used here in this passage. However, it's a family. It's part of a family of words that are used throughout the New Testament and are elsewhere translated as wrestling or contending. So I don't know about you guys. I mean, I've known of some people in the past who we called prayer warriors. But I, I, I really can't say that my prayers can be characterized at all as wrestling or contending or striving. I think better words would be perfunctory, spur of the moment, quick. Paul Zwimmer, a missionary to the Muslims, said, prayer is the gymnasium of the soul. <laughs> I'm not working out my prayers, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Metaphorically, I mean, metaphorically. I'm, my prayers are not a workout. The idea understands that real praying 
to include an element of struggle, discipline, work, spiritual agonizing against the dark powers of evil. Now that's Carson. And, and it's interesting, he uses the word agonizing because the word, the word that Paul uses is, and I can't, I can't say it, but it contains the prefix sin, as in synthesis, okay, to do together, bring together, okay, and agony, agoni, is the root inside the word, okay, from which, and agony, from which we get the word agony, okay. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, finally be strong in the Lord and the and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There's a lot of wrestling in that passage, isn't there? There's a lot of fighting in that, this passage. And it seems that it ultimately all funnels down into prayer. Paul was in Rome by this point awaiting his trial when he wrote this. The struggle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil, of evil in the heavenly places. So, so, so and I, I, I tell you, I am completely guilty of this, but in the Western world, this is just something that's hard to relate to. I mean, we, okay, we believe it. But, I mean, in terms of experience of it and, I, and that sort of thing, well, it's metaphorical for me almost, it seems. Carson takes and devotes a whole page to the power and dominion of spiritual evil. Carson... Um, Noting that Western man's 
he calls it demonic insensitivity substituting sociological, psychological, and economic reasons for what probably are spiritual attacks. For good or ill, this state of affairs, and I'm quoting Carson here, for good or ill, this state of affairs is changing. Most cities of any size in the Western world are now homes to witches' covens. The rise in general interest in the occult sometimes explodes into a horrible media account of satanic rituals or even murder. Demonic powers may also unload massive doses of guilt and despair and shame upon us. Sadly, because we are so insensitive to the possibility that these bouts of depression may be related to our callings as Christians, we may foolishly try to overcome them and cheer ourselves up by going shopping, going out with a friend, reading a book. How seldom do we think of Paul's first recourse, his immediate desire to seek the Lord Jesus in prayer. And I would add that he doesn't seek it by himself. He enlists others to seek it for him as well. The tools of this warfare are truth, righteousness, readiness, a preparedness that flows out of the gospel of peace, faith and salvation and the word of God, and prayer that is alert and persistent. It is linked to ministry, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I, mean, I don't know what it, it's like to sit uh, incarcerated waiting for your trial, fearing what might happen, knowing that if I speak the truth as boldly as I should, that in all likelihood it will doom me to a painful, not just death, but a painful death, a torturous death. And there he was. It's also interesting. He is in court. He is in Rome now. Note that Paul has lost no confidence. Even though the answer to his prayer from Corinth was a hard no. In Rome, Paul has lost no confidence in the importance and the power of prayer. I, I love Paul, not because I, I possibly because he's my I, I'm, I'm he's my namesake, right? Is that how you, is that right? Or am I his? No, he's my namesake. Possibly that's part of it. I don't know. But I mean, he just you know he's he is so solid in his faith throughout his life. 
And he, he was a true go-getter, wasn't he? I mean, here is a man. He was going to stamp this new The Way group out of existence. Right? I actually believe he, his, his um, conversion is probably, is for me, one of the most powerful apologetics for the reality of the risen Christ. Because here was a man who was bound and determined to stamp out this faith. And on that road to Damascus, he encountered the risen Christ. And he did a 180 immediately. And what became, what was a desire to stamp it out became the strongest, most powerful evangelist the world has ever known. Jesus knew what he was doing when he stopped Paul on the road. But even if all this dark power is against us, none less than Jesus is for us. Our struggle is a deep one, spiritual and supernatural. In such a conflict, we must learn to deploy appropriate weapons. And, um, and among the chief of these is this kind of earnest, urgent, persistent prayer. Okay, second point. Paul solicits prayer for himself in connection to his own ministry. This asking for prayer for his ministry is not singular. We've seen it uh, two places so far in the Romans passage and in the Ephesians passage. And Carson gives three more examples in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Corinthians and in Philippians. I'm sorry, Philemon. In Philemon. In, in the Romans passage, he asks that he might be kept safe from unbelievers in Judea. So this is not new to Paul in almost every city he visited. And I, I think, if, if you know, knowing Acts and everything, you see, we saw this time and time again. He goes into a city, he goes first to the synagogue, and he presents the gospel to the children, to, to, the, to God's people, the Jews, all right? And almost in every instance... There will be a few within the, 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 the synagogue, the Jewish, the Jewish settlement in that city. There will be a few who believe. But there will be others who see him and his, and, and his message as a direct threat to Judaism. And they begin to persecute him in the city. And they begin, and it, and it rises to an, an intensity that in, I believe it was Lyconium or Lystrum, Lystra, they stoned him. They actually tried to kill him. Carson makes a couple of points that. This statement from Paul is not in anti-Semitism. I, I thought this was an interesting deal. And he says, which obviously is something that, that the, the church subsequently came to truly struggle with. But this is not. 
Because, because Paul, honestly, in every city, every city that he entered, the first place he goes to is to the synagogue and to the people of God with the message of God to his people. Right? Paul is the missionary to the Gentiles, but he always goes first to God's people, the Jews. When, when, the, when the, the NIV or translates the unbelievers in Judea, Carson says this is much weaker than the Greek, which might be better rendered as disobedient or rebels. Carson says, we are inclined to buy into the modern view that belief is simply a matter of opinion. But for Paul and other New Testament writers held that not to trust Jesus totally is not merely a question of religious preference, not a matter of unbelief in the modern sense, but willful disobedience, moral rebellion. He prays that his service in Jerusalem might be acceptable to the Lord's people there. Paul is not taking it for granted that the Christians in Jerusalem themselves will not have issues with him or the gift that he brings from the Gentile churches. Carlson then draws the following extensions. We should pray, and, and he applies these for Christian leaders. We should pray that Christian leaders might be rescued from the opposition of, of, of outsiders who try to destroy their ministry. And he gives examples there of media attacks, moral attacks where people try to cause a moral failure that may then be exposed, be it sex, greed, social standing, or power. Attacks from other leaders inside the denomination. We're seeing this going on more and more, especially in terms of gender identity and sexual preference. Are we not? Legislative attacks on what ministers and ministries might and might not do are coming. He says, fill in your own examples. It does not take long for a, the thoughtful observer to spot areas where Christian leaders are constantly in danger from outsiders and therefore need the prayers of God's people in their defense. And so I ask us, do you pray for your pastor every day? Do we not understand that his uh, righteousness, for lack of, I, I can't get the right word and I don't have time to get it, so that his righteousness is important to our, your, and my sanctification. Pray for your pastor every day. The second extension is that they might find that their Christian service is, is, is acceptable to those whom they minister. This is a long quote from Carson. For one reason or another, Christian leaders will frequently discover that their ministry is simply not acceptable to some of those they seek to serve. And this opposition can be extraordinarily destructive. Many in our generation attend church to find peace and happiness, not pardon and holiness. They want to be fulfilled, 
not discover how Christ is the fulfillment of earlier revelation. They prefer entertainment to worship, oratory to truth, and programs to piety. If such people exercise a dominant voice in the church, in a church whose leaders earnestly seek to be faithful to Scripture, however contemporary the modes of expression, the leaders are in for a rough time. We need to pray that God will send us under-shepherds who are wise, spiritual, godly, disciplined, informed, prayerful, faithful to Scripture. But we also need to pray that their ministry will be acceptable to the saints. It is an enormous tragedy when there are too few faithful, anointed, visionary leaders. It is a terrible indictment on the church when those the Lord sends are treated like dirt. Not mincing words here, is he? These things happen. And frequently, perhaps they would not happen so often, if more of us prayed that God would make the ministry of his most faithful and spiritually minded leaders widely acceptable among the saints. His third is, his for Paul, prayer for his ministry envisions further ministry. One, understanding his, one's calling. Paul sees his ministry as having always been to preach the gospel on virgin turf. Um, thus, he needs to move on from Asia Minor, and he chooses Spain. So he made it clear that I, like, I, it is, I feel called to go into places where they've never heard the gospel. He's, he's, he's the church planner, and, he's, you know, and he was. That's what he was. He having a balanced vision, this is a large visionary view of prayer. He is thinking ahead, as all men should, and he, carries, and he carries them into his prayer life and the prayer life of others. Sometimes our prayers can be too expansive, such as, Lord, pour your spirit out on everybody in the whole world. Lord, save everybody. Scripture has told us this is, will not happen. <clears throat> now, how then should such, such a prayer be in accordance with God's will? Carson even goes on, so why, why pray it? <laughs> he says. But my impression is that for every believer who offers this sort of sweeping, generalizing petition, this is Carson again, there are several more who get bogged down in relatively picky points related to their health, prosperity, or better, uh, or better the challenge of the next vacation Bible school or the fickleness of a teenage son that they utterly lose any sense of the sweep and direction of ministry. I would not want to give the impression that everyone is called to expansive and immediately fruitful ministry. Some of us are called to situations where the work is slow and difficult, even so. If we do not dream dreams and envision what it might be, it is unlikely we shall ever pray for them or work towards them. We shall spend our lives simply praying, <clears throat> simp I'm sorry, simply getting through the day's work as it comes up. How much better it is, whenever possible, to tie our immediate concerns to the larger possibilities of 
of expanding ministry. And he keeps it connected to the gospel. Notice also that Paul's concern is for the spread of the gospel itself to a needy world. One of the constitutional enforcements of, and this is E.M. Bounds, by the way. This is a quote from E.M. Bounds. One of the constitutional enforcements of the gospel is prayer. Without prayer, the gospel can neither be preached effectively, promulgated faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor be practiced in the life. And for the very simple reason that by leaving prayer out of the catalog of religious duties, we leave God out. And his work cannot progress without him. And his fourth point, it is important to realize that some of Paul's prayers were not answered as he would have liked. And we've already kind of we've already touched on this. So in Rome, in the in the in the request to the Romans, he asked for three things: that he not fall into the hands of unbelieving Jews, that the ministry and the gift would be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem. All of this so that he might quickly head to Rome to be refreshed by the saints already there, and thus launch into the next phase of his ministry in Spain. So that was the nature of his prayer in Romans. Of those three, how many got answered? Yes. The middle one. The believing Christians in Jerusalem did accept the gift. And though they, they struggled with, the, with Paul's approach to to his Gentile ministry, they did not, actually, they never condemned him for it. They did suggest that that he demonstrate that he is truly Jewish while he was in Jerusalem, and that he, and that he pay for some proselytes uh, and, and their cleansing. And that he did the same thing himself. So they, 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 there was a suggestion that he be concerned about the optics. And he took their suggestion, and he did it. For all the good it did him. So he came, to James, he came to Jerusalem, met with James and the elders, and gave his report, and they glorified God. But he was arrested and incarcerated and in Caesarea for two years. Finally, at a hearing before a demonstrably corrupt court requiring him to appeal to Caesar. He's then shipped to Rome, suffering his fourth shipwreck along the way. And he's held in house detention in Rome until his case could be heard. He then immediately met with the Jewish leadership in Rome and made his case to the group. And that once again, and in making his case to the Jewish leadership in Rome, he once again divided the leadership. So Paul, like every other Christian, found some of his prayers were answered as he hoped, but others were not. 
Carson asked the question, what if that were not the case? What if by using the right words and form, God gave us everything we asked for? What would that be like? Say what? Chaos. Chaos. I, I believe that would be a pretty bad thing. I think it would be a really bad thing if God gave me everything I wanted. Really bad thing if he did. God would cease to be God to us. He would become some little genie doing our bidding. In such a situation, how is he glorified? How would we grow in faith and love for him? We, would, we, would, we actually would love him. We'd really like having him around, but we would be loving the things that he gives us, that we get from him. That's what we'd be loving. How would we worship? Such a God who did our every bidding. Final quote. He may give us what we ask for. He may make us wait. He may decline. He may give us the goal of what we ask for, but by quite another means, as when he provided Paul for Paul more grace to cope with the suffering inflicted by the thorn in the flesh rather than removing the thorn. There is a profound sense in which the sovereign, holy, loving, wise Father, whom we address in Jesus' name, is more interested in us than our prayers. I do not demean to deprecate praying. Of course he doesn't. He put a whole book together for it only to say that God's response to our prayers cannot be abstracted from his treatment of us. I do not know the end from the beginning. Only God does. But he is interested in me as his child in the same way that he was interested in the life and ministry of Paul. Part of this business of prayer is getting to know God better. Part of it is learning his mind and will. Part of it is tied up with teaching me to wait or teaching me that my requests are often skewed or my motives selfish. Just as God's unexpected answer to Paul's prayers was the best possible answer, precisely because it was God's, so also his answers to our prayers will also be for his glory and his people's good. Okay, I'm not going to go to review, so we're going to have to run through these. I'll, other than to say, let's, let, we, we can do a bit of a review here. With this book, we have done 12 chapters. We've done lessons from the school of prayer, and this was advice. This was basically not, was not one chapter that didn't, didn't work from Scripture, but was advice that he has got, gleaned over the years from more mature Christians. 
Then he began with the framework of prayer and used 2 Thessalonians 1 as his passage. Worthy petitions in 2 Thessalonians 2. And also 2 Thessalonians 1. He moved on to talking about praying for others and having a passion for people. 1 Thessalonians 3 was the passage. The content of a challenging prayer in Colossians 1. Excuses for not praying. And overcoming hurdles, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. A sovereign and personal God, and there were various passages there, praying to a sovereign God and praying for, praying for power and praying for ministry. I have found this book incredibly convicting. Um, and, and part of my problem right now is given the busyness and the noise in my life how do I transform my prayer life into one that is persistent that it wrestles how am I going to get to the place where I pray until I pray? But I do know that if I don't find somehow a way to do that, I will lose one of God's most powerful tools in my life to sanctify me for His glory. Sorry. <laughs> didn't, didn't want it to be quite that dramatic. Anyway, with that statement, is there any final thoughts somebody would really feel like be helpful to us? Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't have the time to go through all of that, so we didn't go through all of that. But I mean, I mean, we see in the story there is a reason for why God did what He did. And I, and I, and I, and I too, truth, truthfully, too, also believe, I mean, Paul was not God's only man, was he? I mean, by, by, within 300 years, Christian, Christians, basically Christianity was the, was the national religion. Gone from being persecuted unto death, people being persecuted unto death, to being, and quite frankly, probably, that was the worst thing that could have happened to Christianity in some ways. All right? Paul was not God's only man. Paul, God needed Paul to be Paul and to, and to use his life as an example for us all. And we benefit greatly from it. Okay. With that, we're dismissed.